a rabbit hunted by men or dogs, writes E.L. Watson in Enigmas of Natural History, will run for its life and run very swiftly. But a rabbit that is hunted by a stoat will go hunching and limping as though the paralysis of fear were cramping all its muscles. You know what a stoat is? Something that's uh, also called an ermine, and it belongs to the same family as the weasel, this family of small carnivorous mammals uh, known for their squat legs and, and their long, sinuous bodies. Here's what uh, E.L. Watson writes about his encounter with one of these animals. I was in Wiltshire near Swallowcliff. The mist was blowing past in soft, cloudy waves, depositing fine drops of water on every small hair of wool on my coat. It grew so thick that I could only see my way by keeping close to the wooden posts that formed the fence on one side of the track. These emerged as ghostly gray figures out of the whiteness, and it seemed that the extreme stillness of the heavens had descended with the cloud and held the earth spellbound. There were no notes of birds, and no sound was borne upward from the distant and invisible valleys, only the tread of my feet on the turf. Suddenly, I heard the characteristic and peculiar cry of a stoated rabbit. I stood quite still, listening. It came again, and nearer, and then from the direction of the wind and blowing mist, there came out of the mist the bunched, stricken form of the rabbit. Trembling and semi-paralyzed, it moved with its hair lifted on its back. Its extreme fear gave it the repellent look of an animal stricken with some disease. Within two paces of where I stood, it crouched down and began a long, continuous scream. I stood as still as I was able while the rabbit crouched at my feet, screaming. It had not seen me. A few seconds later, the stoat came galloping with supple, elongated, streak-like motion. It leaped upon the rabbit, putting its short arms about the rabbit's neck, and with a cuddling, almost caressing movement, thrust its face down into the soft fur of the nape. The rabbit screamed more shrilly and threw back its head to that biting embrace. Its eyes were staring and wide as it gazed directly upwards, and I knew that the stoat's small, sharp teeth had reached the spinal life, and that the rabbit was now paralyzed, and could not, even if its fear were removed, make any further effort. The stoat, which had climbed onto the rabbit's back, was no longer biting, but drinking the blood. The muscles of the neck swelled and contracted, and so also did the muscles of the lean sides. As the rabbit in its terror had not seen me, so also the stoat was completely taken up with the business of drinking. When I first read that story, I was uh, two things. I was fascinated, I was disturbed because I know what rabbits can do, how hard it is to catch them. 
uh, how well equipped they are to evade a pursuer. Now, my neighborhood is just uh, stuffed full of, uh, of rabbits. And as I was out walking with my second son, Micaiah, the other day, we saw one. And he told me how recently he'd tried to catch one. Uh, and he's a fast kid. He's really fast. But the rabbit, of course, was faster, way faster. And it left Micaiah in its dust. And so when I read about this fleet-footed creature, now frozen with fear, I find it disturbing because the rabbit is an exemplar of activity. Like just think of the Energizer Bunny. It's in its nature to be active. And you know what? The rabbit isn't alone in being designed for activity. There's something else as well that's designed for that. And you know what that something is? That something is a man. Let me take you to Job 38, verses 1 to 3, which I'll read from the King James translation from 1611 because you just can't beat the way that it's put in the King James translation of 1611. Beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. I love that. Now, without going into, uh, into what leads up to this verse, to God saying this to Job for a moment, uh, just picture a boy with, with, with me for a moment. Picture a boy, say uh, 10 or 11 or 12, reading this verse for the very first time, reading God's words, gird up thy loins like a man. Take a moment to, to really appreciate the archaic vigor of that expression. Gird up thy loins like a man. I still remember how when I was a boy, the thrill that passed through me when I first read those, bo- those words Because when I read those words, I remember in that moment, I realized something. It absolutely hit me. I realized that God was telling Job to do something like a man. Gird up thy loins like a man. Wow, that got me excited. You know why that got me excited? It got me excited because it meant on some level that manhood was valid, like it was a valid category. It meant that manhood was real. And not only that, it was in the Bible, which meant that the Bible wasn't this prissy little book that had no relevance to me. It wasn't just some uh, made-up fantasy, uh, my ideal of manhood either. Um, It wasn't something that uh, that was just, you know, woven into fictional books uh, that I was reading, like Conan the Barbarian or Tarzan of the Apes. No, manhood was right here in God's word. I remember when I read that, how I, how I looked down and I looked up and I was like, oh, that can't be there. I did a double take and I looked back at the page, almost disbelieving that that sentence was there. Gird up thy loins like a man. Whatever that meant, I thought. I didn't entirely know what it meant, but whatever that meant, I thought, it sounded awesome. And what was more, 
it was spoken by God. Okay, so what does that phrase mean? Well, it's an ancient Near Eastern expression. And it refers to a man gathering up the lengths of his robe to gird them beneath his belt. Now, this was something that ancient men actually did. And they did it so that the robe, the lower lengths of their robe, wouldn't get in their way as they engaged in some demanding activity, like fighting, say, or running, or working, or wrestling. So in the book of Job, when God says, gird up thy loins like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. He's telling Job, get ready. Get ready, Job. Prepare your mind. Get ready to be active, to do something demanding. And there it is. The essence. The essence of what it means in the Bible to be a man. Activity. The active use of strength, whether it's in the physical realm or the mental realm or what we're going to zero in a little bit later on, the spiritual realm. The essence of manhood is activity. You know, which takes no convincing for the schoolboy who gets so twitchy in his desk. He wants to be active. Something inside him just yearns for it. And so when a boy hears the voice of God say, gird up your loins like a man, he gets excited. A vision forms in his soul of quests and battles and the doing of great deeds. That's how he reacts when he hears God's voice. But then he may hear another voice. A different voice that speaks of toxic masculinity. As though there were something offensive about the mere existence of a man. That is a voice that is speaking in our culture today. That is a voice that is growing today. And you know what? That voice is nothing new. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where we hear it from the mouth of a serpent. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what is going on here? In this vivid presentation of our spiritual history, the serpent has come to the woman and is calling into question what God said. But you know what? That isn't all the serpent is doing. The serpent isn't just calling God into question. It's calling something else, someone else, into question. Because who did God give the command to in the first place? Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it 
and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so who did God give the command to? Well, he gave it to the man, to the Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man, before the woman was created. And so who would Eve have learned about God's commandment from? Well, from the Adam, from Adam. And so when the serpent comes to her and asks, did God really say He's calling not only God into question, but also Adam, who would have been the one to tell Eve what God said. And so, in going straight to the woman, what the serpent did was he bypassed the man. He excluded the Adam as though there were no Adam, as though the man did not even exist. Which, judging by our culture today, is exactly how many would like things to be. And yet Adam did exist, even though the serpent bypassed him. Okay, well, then where was Adam when the serpent came to Eve? Was he perhaps on a personal vacation, you know, or, or was he away on a, on a work trip or, or maybe just off in another part of the garden? You know what? None of these things, none of them. You want to know where Adam was when the serpent came to Eve? Look with me at Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So that's where he was. Adam was with her while the enemy sank in its teeth. Adam was passive, inactive, like a paralyzed rabbit. There was no battle. There was no argument. There was no resistance really of any kind. There was just a quiet, conforming man who fell into line with the will of the serpent expressed through the woman, which was the opposite of the pattern that God had designed these two for, right? I mean, rather than the serpent speaking to Eve, who would then lead Adam, it was supposed to be God speaking to Adam, who would then lead Eve. Eve, because Eve was created to be Adam's helper. Now, the Hebrew word for helper there is ezer. It's a noble word. It's a word that is used about God himself, actually, in relationship to his people. God is his people's helper. Because like God's people, the man, the Adam, Adam, he wasn't sufficient in and of himself. Genesis 2.18 The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Which means that something else was needed. Someone else was needed. And what was that something? Who was that someone? Was it a second man that was needed? 
a copy of the man, a copy of the ish, that's the Hebrew word for man? Well, no. What was needed was not a, a copy, but a compliment. Not a second ish, but an isha, which is the Hebrew word for woman. Not a copy, not a competitor, but a compliment to the man. And so God said, I will make a helper fit for him, who corresponds to him, who is his matching opposite. And God created woman, whom Adam named Eve, a name that means life. And all of this is reflected in how a woman's design from her God-given ability to grow a child within her, imparting strength to that life, to being able to feed that same child through nursing, once again, imparting strength to that life, to the way that women are just generally more nurturing on an emotional level, once again, imparting strength. Women impart strength. You see it in their biology, And you see it in the Bible. And if anything, thinking of, you know what, everything that a woman can do on this level, how a woman imparts strength, it can actually make a man, it can make a father feel a little inadequate at times. You know, like his contribution isn't all that big of a deal. And as funny as it is to joke about that kind of thing, it just isn't so. It just isn't so because men and women were designed not for competition with each other, right? They were designed for cooperation, an alliance of two beings made as complementary images of God with the woman imparting strength, you know, almost like the Holy Spirit and the men using that strength in the activity of leading like our Lord Jesus being the tip of the spear of God's mission in the world. Now that may not be very popular, that dynamic in our culture today. But you know what? Facts don't care about opinions. Reality just is what it is, whether we like it or not. And to illustrate the facts on a spiritual level, There's this modern day Swiss study on how the faith is passed from one generation to the next. And it's interesting because in this study, they discovered, they discovered that there is actually one critical factor, one critical factor in passing on the faith from one generation to the next. You know what it was? The critical factor in passing the faith from one generation to the next was the example of the father, the example of the father, that above all was the critical factor in the spiritual life of adult sons and daughters. So just to give you the numbers, if a father did not go to church, no matter how regularly the wife did, only 2%, one child in 50 would grow up to become a regular worshiper. But then if you flip that situation, if a father did attend regularly, well then between 66 and 75% of his children would also grow up into regular worshipers. 
So the example of the father, whether the father attended church or did not attend church, was a regular worshiper or not, made the difference between 2% and 66 to 75% of children growing up with a vigorous faith. Now what this tells us is that God's design for us as men and women together is a design full of wisdom. It tells us that, you know what, fathers? You actually matter. You really do. And not just you fathers, actually, but, but all of you godly, worshiping men. There's this line in 1 Timothy 2.8 that I really like. The Apostle Paul writes this. He writes, in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Like your hands are a symbol of your work, your activity. The men should pray, lifting holy hands. You know what? I still remember. I still remember in addition to the example that my father gave me as a boy, the example that other men gave me. Men like Terry Frieson, men like Randy Clark, men like Paul Cremusa, worshiping with their hands lifted toward God. That's what I grew up with. And you know what? That's what I want my boys to grow up with. That's what I want your girls and boys to grow up with. A church full of men who are active in their worship toward God. Not giving the impression that this is just the ladies thing, but this is the men's thing as well. Men who are active in their worship toward God. So, a few quick notes of personal application. First to the women. Ladies, glory in the strength of your men. Encourage them. Inspire them. Because that's what a strong woman does. A weak woman will try to conquer her man. A strong woman tries to make her man stronger. Draws out that strength, imparts that strength to him. So be strong enough to impart strength to your man. Now as for you men, listen to your women. Let them impart the strength of their counsel, and then lead them in God's mission. Don't dominate them, and don't lay down before them. Don't become paralyzed like, like that rabbit or like Adam. Gird up thy loins like a man. Get up and be active. Be an example. On a spiritual level, what this means is, is taking the initiative and engaging with God and letting your kids see that, right? Studying the word, girding up the loins of your mind, as it says in 1 Peter 1, how interesting that he takes that phrase and applies it to the intellectual life with God. Studying the word, letting your kids see that. You know, what an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. Just imagine, imagine your son or your daughter getting up early some morning or, or maybe coming down late some evening and you don't even know they're there. And they see a light through a crack in the door of your private room, your private space, maybe your office. And they see that light and it's just them 
and they're thinking, I wonder, what is daddy doing in there all by himself? And then just imagine, as they come closer to that crack in the door, and they peek through that crack, they see their dad on his knees before God and before his word. Can you think of anything more powerful? Now to close, I want to acknowledge, I want to acknowledge that men, that men, this calling that we have to be active, to take initiative, to be leaders, it can sometimes feel daunting. You know, like maybe you don't have what it takes to live up to God's calling. Or like the mere idea of godly manhood is, is a relic from the past, reserved for, you know, giants of men that no longer walk the earth today. Untenable even in the world that you and I live in. Out of date somehow. But you know what? Any, any voice that would say that to you, that would say that, that you don't have what it takes, or that those men are all gone, or that that's not even something we should be striving for anymore, any voice that would say that to you now is the voice of the serpent. It's the very same voice. It's a voice that's meant to intimidate you, to paralyze you, to make you passive and manageable like that rabbit and like Adam. And to counter that voice, I want to leave you with another we hear that voice in the secret encounter, which is fitting since we began this sermon with, with a secret encounter uh, between a man and an animal. Well, in this secret encounter, a voice comes to a man who's called to be a leader, just as all of us as men are called to be leaders. Only this young leader, he's got to follow the greatest leader that his people have ever known. I'm talking about Joshua, who had to follow Moses. And in the book of Joshua, in its very first chapter, we have this moment following Moses' death when the Lord God himself comes to Joshua and he speaks this one sentence three times in a row. He says other things, but he repeats this one sentence three times in a row. You know what he says? He says, be strong and courageous. You really can do this, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Take your cue from my word. Be strong and courageous. I'll be with you no matter what happens. That's what God said to his new leader, Joshua. And that applies to you. That applies to me. When you feel inadequate, be strong. Be courageous. With God, you can do this. You know, when, when you're lacking in direction and a sense of where you should go, what you should do, be strong and courageous. Take your cue from God's word. When you keep on failing, when circumstances just aren't going the way you thought they would go, be strong. Be courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong 
be courageous. The Lord God is with you. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, I will be with you to the end of the age. He will not forsake you. Well, we're going to bow our heads. And after we pray, I'll have three recommendations for you on this Father's Day. Let's bow our heads. Our Father God, on this day, uh, we just thank you for how you made us. Male and female, you created us. In your very image, you created us. Women to impart strength and men to use that strength in self-sacrificial leadership activity, which is the pattern that the man of all men your son, our Lord Jesus, modeled for us as he loved us, his church, and gave himself up for us. And in that activity, he crushed the head of the serpent. And so equip us, Father, equip us, your men, to follow your son's lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as we transition toward our, our benediction now, I want to leave all of you men Uh, men in particular, with three recommendations to help you gird up your loins. First, a podcast. It's a podcast I listen to all the time. It's called Defenders with William Lane Craig, which is a Sunday school class, actually, taught by what very well may be the greatest living Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig. So look that up on uh, any podcast provider. You can also look it up on uh, YouTube as well. Defenders with William Lane Craig. Second, a book a book on raising boys to become men. It's called Future Men by Douglas Wilson. And uh, I think it's actually the best book of its kind. Lastly, a movie. We watched this uh, this recently at my house, Captain's Courageous, it's called. It is unbelievable. It's so good. Starring Spencer Tracy, 1937. It's a black and white movie. Wow, did my boys and I ever love it, I got to tell you. But there's a lot of different versions of this movie, Captain's Courageous, out there. So you got to make sure that you watch the one that's from 1937. So that's my gift to you fathers today. Happy Father's Day, brothers. All right, well, let's close by uh, reading our benediction. Please join me in the all caps. So we are the church. So wherever you go, Christ goes. If someone asks, what is your church like? Tell them, I am what my church is like. If someone asks, what does your church do? Tell them, I am doing what my church does. We are the church And we may be the only contact someone has with Jesus this week. So though they may not yet belong to the church, we can bring the church to them. Bless you.